This season, we're proud to partner with Wave. Do you know 7 out of 10 creators don't have enough money set aside for a financial crisis? It's super important to have the right tools and insights to stay in control. And let's be honest, most of us did not become money managers. So let the experts do the work. Wave is affordable, one-stop money management for creators. It streamlines invoicing, payments, payroll, all in one place, keeping you in complete control. Plus, Wave is offering a free personal 20-minute session with one of their bookkeeping coaches when you create a free account. A normally $99 cost, Wave wants to make expert advice accessible for creators and take the fear and intimidation out of bookkeeping taxes. Spots are limited, so don't wait. Visit waveapps.com slash nofluke to claim your free coaching session. That's W-A-V-E-A-P-P-S dot com slash N-O-F-L-U-K-E. That's waveapps.com slash nofluke. Welcome to It's No Fluke, your weekly podcast about the untold stories and uncharted waters in culture and creativity. I wouldn't say I'm a believer in psychics. I question mentalists that are on HBO all the time, but David Armano doesn't miss when it comes to spotting a trend, and so at some point you have to take notice. 13 years ago, he was one of the first people I asked career advice from for this very reason. His latest Substack article is a how-to guide in both how to use AI and how it will disrupt the white-collar world. The marketing CX leader spent a decade as the global strategy director for Elman, worked on autonomous vehicles for Cruise, and now currently leads marketing at Soul Machines, an AI avatar platform. Come for the talk about generative AI and the evolution of the customer experience, but stay for David's ability to see the world in a way in which you haven't yet. Let's go. David, I feel like when people do or they, they want to give examples or have conversations about AI, the examples aren't specific enough, right? We, we talk about it in this very large expanse. And what I thought was really interesting and really cool about your Substack article was that you got into specifics. In a second, I want you to kind of explain this example, but in it, you ask these questions. If AI is used in the creation of communications, should there be a disclaimer? If AI lets communication teams do more with less, should that impact headcount? If AI gets facts wrong, where do we place accountability? And then the bias in, bias out question of how do communications and PR professionals account for the implicit bias, which, which can sometimes be found in AI output? That is a ton to start a podcast, but talk to me through the example that led to all those questions, and then we can kind of unpack that. Yeah, sure. Um, so the context behind those questions um, was I, I just had I had this idea to um, I'm writing about and I'm I, I work within the AI field. We'll talk more about that later. But um, mm-hmm. I I find myself um, thinking and writing and writing is sort of thinking about AI from different perspectives. And then one day I had the perspective of um, I've had this sort of hypothesis that. Um, you know, I, I always see the argument that um, uh, AI won't replace certain things that people do. And a lot of that, like, it won't replace the most creative things. And I think that's true. I do. I believe mm-hmm. that is true. And I, I, a lot of my network are people that either work for companies um, in communications departments or, you know, in marketing departments or for agencies, for that matter. That's a good, good chunk of my network. But in the same breath, while I think that's true, I think the mistake that these people are making is they're over-indexing on 
the output that they create, which which I believe is oftentimes very mediocre. And um, you know, the, the, I think when you look at the majority of both marketing communications, the eighty percent of it is mediocre, and it's the twenty percent that you maybe see in the award show, if that. You know, so that's a, maybe a bit of an eighty twenty rule. So I feel like that's being left out. So that sort of gave me the inspiration to write about AI from the context of communications and how it could impact PR. That hypothesis is, hey, most communications is pretty straightforward and AI can do that. Then it raises the questions, okay, if AI becomes a part, becomes a, a tool, then those questions become more relevant. Yeah, and so you actually created a prompt and you you put together a pitch. Right, and, and this is the thing. I have to be honest with you. I did that and... I actually, the results were better than I thought in the sense that, and, and Jeff, this is your area. I mean, you, you pitch, right? That's a part of one of the many things that you do. The pitch, as far as the prompt that I gave, so basically the prompt was I made up, um, it, was more, it was along the lines of, hey, Threads by Meta has come up with these three features, and I, and I listed out the features. I made them up. They're like features that exist on Twitter that Threads doesn't have yet, and I listed those out. And I got specific about uh, uh, pitch um, the journalist Taylor Lorenz, who covers that area, and do it in this tone. So I'm simplifying the prompt, but that was pretty much the prompt. The pitch itself is what you would expect to see a pitch to be. It yeah. follows, and 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 like it follows the right formula. There's nothing amazing about it. Like, is it the best pitch you've ever seen, Jeff? No, 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 no. And that's not the point. But is it consistent with pitches that you've seen? Upper 90th percentile of pitches, to be honest with you. I get pitched all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, thought, and I thought about that too. I actually got into a thing with, with a, um, this thought leader on, this, on a similar kind of topic, but it was someone pitching a business. And, and their point was how terrible it was. And they actually included a disclaimer that it was done via AI. And so his point was, this is just garbage. And I actually, actually, that is what you just showed, the screen grab that you showed is no more garbage than the majority of business pitches that I get. So the, the difference is, um, yes, we're going to have very mediocre to maybe things that are low quality and they're, they are going to be automated. They are much of that can be done now without, um, you know, with, with maybe humans in the loop, but not humans doing as much as they once were. Well, and then there's the term sandwiching where you use that, you use the tool to create something that's baseline 80 to 90%. You right. add your expertise and then you round out the corners again with AI. That's totally possible. I, the interesting thing for me, and you, you, you mentioned it, like I work in PR. One of the things I've been ardently against is pitching for like the last 13 years. I actually try to pitch as little as possible while everybody else is pitching. I'm like, no, I'm anti-pitch. I will try and find every other way of doing it mm. because I would rather do a warm introduction than a cold call. I would rather have a, a way of having the conversation that doesn't seem generic or formulaic, right? right? Those And so I think you are spot on to say that while we talk about all of these large gargantuan things with AI, what we really are going to see is all of the mundane tasks and all the things that feel like cold calls and all the things that seem um, already a little robotic. Boy, those are ripe. Press release, For right? There's another one, pretty formulaic. And here's the thing about these generative tools, right? Of, of, with, of which ChatGPT is one of many and many more to come. Um, mm -hmm they will give you a good starting point. 
And um, yeah. and and in something like communications, you always have to start with that boilerplate and then you edit it, right? And then the editing also becomes formulaic and sort of repetitive. So it can it can get you from zero to one. And if you don't feel that it's good enough, you can obviously edit. But then also, obviously, where it really is is super helpful is in all those repetitive tasks. And then I brought the example of, um, I know in that post I raised the question for agencies. It's going to be a really interesting one for agencies because the thing about agencies is they make money off bodies and they make money off a lot of junior bodies. Correct. And that's, you know, when we when we are talking about AI um, and, the, and the potential future, um, the starting point is those types of tasks that can be automated, right? And a lot of times that those are the most junior types of roles. So... That one, I think agencies are going to, I feel like they're going to get blindsided on that one because that's an existential, um, that is a business model challenge. And business models don't change overnight. They're very difficult to change your core business model. That is, um, that is and, and this will play out in years, probably. Mm-hmm. I, I'm pragmatic about these things. You know, I'm not like a super... Um, naive evangelist is like, oh, everything's going to change overnight. This will take likely years, but it could be like a slow, you know, drumbeat. And then all of a sudden it feels like you wake up in the morning and everything's changed. I've felt like this is going to be like online shopping. Like it will, we'll see it. It will exist for a decade. And then all of a sudden somebody will go, oh, I can buy a couch. Like, seriously, I can buy a couch? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And then the, the tipping point will happen. When when people feel like they can, the thing that happened with online shopping is once they felt like they could buy anything online and they were comfortable with buying anything online, they did. It's the same thing with AI. Once they feel they're comfortable to do anything with it, I think they will. The interesting thing same, with your same experience. Thing with mo- same thing with mobile phone. Once people, and this is why yes, a yes. lot of these generative tools, including ChatGPT, have been so powerful. Like uh, another context. Okay, if I work on a brand side, but you know, let's say I'm a mid-level manager, or even a senior manager, and I played around with ChatGPT, the light bulb will go off. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden I'm thinking about, well, can my agency partner, can my teams be more efficient? Can my agency partners be yeah. more? I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, the inconvenient truth about business is that uh, efficiency. I mean, look at look at what we mm-hmm. look at what the tech sector just did over the last you know six months to a year when it comes no, to efficiency. Exactly. And so like your experience that spans everywhere from Edelman to now at Soul Machines, I want to get into that in a second. But when you talk about business model, I really do think and I think you're, you know, you're alluding to it and it's going to happen. If your business model is built on billable hours versus output, that changes because it really is going to be more about output rather than the bodies doing billable hours just because that's simply going to change with the tech. That's that to me, I think is the biggest difference that's going to come from this. True. And the reason why I use both PR and the media relations um, aspect of it is because not only uh, so consultancy are also is also bill, uh, a billable hours business, Yep. but more times than not. And there are junior level people as well. But, um, you know, a lot of times with consultancies, you're getting subject matter experts, you're 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 paying you're paying for knowledge um, yeah. versus, you know, like a, a PR agency model where you're paying for scale. Yes. And so that is where the AI comes in. What if the scale isn't needed and you can be more efficient and you can actually do what you need to get done? That's the disruptive aspect when it comes to those billable bodies. Like 
the reason I wanted to talk to you too is that your career spans a lot of different things, whether it's AI, autonomous vehicles, a lot of different places. You've always been able to be a couple of years ahead and you're very well read. You know what's coming. And I don't exactly, I don't know if we've ever really even talked about how how you have that ability or where that comes from or where you think you can find the pulse. So, I mean, that's part of the question, but is it gut? Is it is it just reading a lot of knowledge? Is it talking to people in the industry? How do you kind of gravitate toward what is next? It's a great question. Um, some of it's instinct, some of it is hard work, and some of it is um, um, an attraction to to change and innovation. And there's different phases that I'm attracted to. Like, so as I kind of rebuilt this most recent stage of my career, and I started with Cruise when I worked for, when I, I did a contract with Cruise and it got my gears turning around. The AI is a big part of the robo taxi technology, which is what Cruise is. Yeah. Cruise yeah. And, and Waymo. So it's a big part of that. And as I was doing that contract, um, um, uh, the light bulb went off for me that um, I was working in a space that felt very early on, as I had done many times. So I started my career as a graphic designer, as basically the world was shifting from physical, like create create designs physically to desktop publishing. And then the world started moving into the internet. And and and, and then mm-hmm. I actually moved from that into um, basically like designing websites for companies. And then um, you just referenced e-commerce, right? Like the whole, the web went through like just several iterations. I wrote about this recently where it went from brochure-like websites to then mm-hmm. transactional e-commerce and banking sites to then, um, oh, I skipped a step, the whole indexing of the web and, and the birth of the search engines and then the dominance of Google and then mobile and then social. Each time these have been major transformations. And I've worked with companies either on the creative side design side, and more recently, strategy and marketing side. I've always worked with companies at these sort of big moments. And I, uh, when I was doing this contract with Cruise, the LiPo went off with me for me. And this is also when Web3 and crypto was really mm-hmm. big, and I had no interest in that. And a lot of people, <laughs> I, you know, a lot of people put yeah. that forward as like the next big thing of the web. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I've been through these big moments. But AI even the work that we were doing for Cruise felt like that. And then when I joined Soul Machines, I also thought that I was like, okay, this, and this is before AI exploded. I joined Correct. Soul Machines um, well over a year and a half ago, and it transformed how we do what's called conversational AI, which was done as all chatbots were done um, using basically the AI was in the natural language processing. There's the AI part of Soul Machines that makes the animation autonomous that that's built on AI algorithms. Um, but we weren't connecting to the large language model, right? Which is the generative AI. And now our product does. So um, I had the inkling that AI, AI, the intersection of AI and customer experience, which is where Soul Machines plays for the most part, felt really compelling to me. And then all of a sudden, chat GPT happened and Microsoft happened and, you know, Bard became a thing and, before that, there was Mid Journey and Dolly, and I played around with a number of these things. And mm-hmm. so, 
we had the power of generative AI in our hands. And, that, and that's the tipping point. And that's why I mentioned mobile. Like once we got the power of apps in our hands, once we got the power of any, like once we became, once when we can become consumers of this transformational technology, that's when you see, um, there's the phrase, the consumerization of um, IT. Yeah. AI, this is the next big thing. Um, uh, enterprise, large language models, right? Um, no one wants chat GPT getting their data, but you're going to see companies build and host secure large language models that taps their data and does it in a secure way. And it's hosted on something like Azure from Microsoft um, mm-hmm. and it's all locked down, but the experiences can become very dynamic and they can, they can feel like conversations. I feel like it's kind of impossible for companies not to want to use something that will automate things, make things faster, make things better, improve upon those things. Like that just seems like a no brainer, right? Um, It's more so from the consumer adoption standpoint that we talk about. Like right now, when you talk about mid journey or chat GPT, they're kind of fun. They're things that people just kind of mess around with, right? And there's just a lot of experimentation. It's almost like early days of social media. Yeah, but I think think, um, people are using them. I mean, remember the the lawyer who used it and he was outed because there was actual information that was wrong? I actually think there's a lot of people probably wrongly using it in ways to do their work. Um, There was- Is it? Ooh, here's the question. Is it wrong? Well, the, well, um, this is where I think we're in the early days discussion around ethics and disclaimers. And, you know, um, it's I don't know if there's a concrete answer on that. Like to use the example that I gave, I think, for example, I think there does need to be, need to be a level of transparency if you're an agency Mm-hmm. Um, working with a, a, a client, I think you, there needs to be transparent, like, hey, we're using these tools, but we're also going to use our expertise to fact check and do sure. X, Y, and Z. Um, and there needs to be an honest discussion around that, you know, like, again, like, maybe be proactive and say, look, like, it's going to help us get these efficiencies. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if a lot of that isn't happening. Because oh, again, if you're doing professional services, it's like, great, like we can service more clients and be more efficient and make more money. Um, so we're in early days. I think on, on things like that, there do need to be um, transparent conversations. I think you're right when you have a stewardship with clients, right? And you have to kind of just be upfront. That's more of a, it's a it's an ethics, but it's also kind of a courtesy. Um, the comparison I'd like to make is the calculator. Like I, to me, and maybe I'm slightly optimistic, but I view AI as simply just the calculator. At one point we used the abacus and then we thought that the calculator was cheating. And I'm sure there were professors and similar things happening where they're like, well, you can't use the calculator. You're not going to know how to use math. And the person would be like, well, this is just going to allow me to do this faster. And I'm still going to learn how to do these complex equations. And it's not going to be any different. Um, which brought me to that example. And I think it's Texas A&M. And if I get this wrong, uh, somebody help me fix this in post. But there was the Texas A&M professor who was like, I want to fail my whole class because you all did your finals using chat GPT. And then he puts puts everything into chat GPT and thinks it's a reverse search engine. He's like, oh, I'm going to fail all of you, right? Um, you know, that's not how it works. But it's interesting, like, if you used it and you created something that is good... Are you cheating or are you using a calculator? And to me, 
I think you're using a calculator. And I might be wrong and I be, might be more optimistic and I would love that debate. But, um, and I think there's certainly, when you talk about the elimination of certain um, lower level jobs, that impacts how you can ascend in your career, right? There are real life implications of it. But yes, when you're using it in communications or in certain ways um, to kind of automate the, the beginning of the process, I think it's the calculator. So I understand um, that analogy. And as a matter of fact, I, I quoted someone who had spent time at Google and, and she actually described as, a, as like chat GPT as a calculator for words. I was like, oh, that's a great quotable. So similar to the way that you've been thinking about it. Um, let me provide a different analogy. Yes. This is just a different opinion. Um, I think we like the calculator and it makes sense because what the calculator taps into is it just, you know, it takes the things about math that um, are sort of, you know, more formulaic so that you can focus on the bigger picture of the thing that you're trying. If you're trying to like, you know, actually like write a really complex formula and do something quantum physics, like you don't need to actually mm-hmm. be the best do the best things that a calculator can do. So I, I understand that. I think a potentially more accurate analogy may be um, the automation that we've seen in the in the in the um, non-white collar world, um, and like for example in the robotics industry. So like the automation of manufacturing, uh, yeah. the automation of assembly line, the robots. Like, would you describe mm. a robot as a calculator? No. In in Fair. no no. And so and the reason why I think we people like a, a, and I know that you're not a only like you have hobbies that go outside of as you're very handy, right? As I, I am not. But I think when you have a, a white collar mindset, we're not used to the to this level of disruption, right? Like in manufacturing, we've had how many years now of automation-based disruption. And so that world is very familiar with, with what automation can do. We're now, we being white collar workers are now being confronted with it. And we actually need to look at the blue collar world and the things that have been automated in the blue collar world and yeah. actually like be like hey like some of that's coming to our world now um that hits we've both lived in the rust belt i still do you don't um so that is felt right yeah um there's this uh, transformational yeah there's this thing that people always go why are there so many pittsburgh steelers fans all over the country why did i go to this chargers game and there's a bunch of steelers fans i'm like because everybody got displaced you look at Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and a lot of these cities that um, population went down, right? It's a direct correlation to things got automated in the blue collar world. You know, I so live very close to Flint. That is a very real okay, so thing. Okay, so automotive manufacturing, you have an image in your head. And if yeah. it's an accurate modern image, it's going to be a combination of people with these robots and like the robots do one thing and then the people do another and like it comes together, mm-hmm. right? That's why to me, right? Like humans are going to be in the loop. There may be less humans in the loop though. Like they may like, like, you know, if you look at an assembly line, it is ro- it is things that are automated by machines. People are still required. It's not like humans don't exist on those assembly lines, but they're working together and it doesn't look like what it did, what, 50, 60 years ago, maybe even less. Well, I think you were adept to bring that into comms and marketing because I don't think it is talked about in that term that much. I don't think we talk about it in those fields. It's highly pertinent to this podcast and this podcast audience. Um, yeah, there there are really things that can be automated. Um, some people would argue should be automated. And um, 
well, that fear is real. <laughs> well, and this is kind of why I go to that hubris of marketers, communicators, creative people. I think um, in in the minds of those people, I look. There's this is a known thing in the creative field. There's there's the work you want to do, and then there's the work that actually goes live. And again, yeah. a lot of that work is good enough. It's not the outstanding, amazing work that like just, you know, there's a small percentage of that. And so even in those creative endeavors, the things that are a little bit more kind of formulaic, I think marketers and communicators have to be a little bit more humble about like some of that more formulaic work could be automated. Now, should it be? That's a different discussion, right? I mean, we see what's going on in Hollywood and I think there's really great discussions to be had um, about you know the importance of work and the and the ethics and and where humans should be involved, but there is this cold reality of business sort of mar- marches forward again, like using. That's why yeah. I go back to like look at what happened to the non-white collar world, the non-knowledge uh, worker world. We'll take a quick break here, but when we turn, we'll talk about AI as it relates to the center of the writer's strike. And now first, a message from Wave. Money management, like a lot of things in my life, currently sits on a notes app as a thing I should be doing, but I'm not currently doing. Managing your money and accessing expert advice shouldn't be hard, and that's why It's No Fluke is proud to partner with Wave. Wave offers an easy-to-use suite of money management tools for creators in one place, streamlining your bookkeeping and saving you major time. Plus, when you create a free Wave account, you'll get a free personal 20-minute session with one of Wave's bookkeeping coaches, normally priced at $99. It's not a sales call. You can ask any questions you have about bookkeeping and get expert advice. The goal is to help you feel confident and in control of your finances. Spots are limited. Don't wait. Visit waveapps.com slash noflu to claim your free coaching session. That's W-A-V-E-A-P-P-S dot com slash N-O-F-L-U-K-E. That's waveapps.com slash nofluke. Well, that's why that writer strike is so contingent on codifying the writer's room. Because right now, that's not in the contract. There is no part of the contract that says you have to have a writer's room. And there were a lot of these contracts that were saying, well, you're the creator. You could just do it by yourself or we could automate this. And so, I, you know, I mean, there are a lot of things that get discussed about those strikes, but that is one of the main sticking points that there has to be some kind of, you know, implicit language that says this show needs a writer's room so that we can kind of protect those jobs. Yeah. That's the big fight they're having over. There, the, there are other things that get talked about. I think that is the most, um, of all the interviews I've seen, I think that's the most important fight they're having is literally over making sure that they hold on to X amount of jobs per show. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and I'm not Hollywood. Like um, our CEO always makes this distinction. We actually, one of... Um, one of the things that Soul Machines does is, is um, it actually creates these 3D avatars of, of celebrities. So we did one for a yeah. K-pop star named Mark Twan. And that's never going to replace Mark Twan, nor is it meant to. And we talk about the ethics Correct. of that. And, and we do that intentionally. That's actually, you can talk to that version of Mark Twan. And now we have that version connected to a large language model. So it's everything that Mark Twan knows, plus the magic of large language model. But it is not meant to replace him. It's meant to like help him scale his celebrity. And if you're a fan, 
you can like just fire up digital Mark Twan and, 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 you know, talk to him, but you know, it's not really him. Right. So, and it never would replace him. So I, there's lots of opportunities where these technologies could go to sort of, you know, help people scale sort of inter, these kind of intimate um, interactions um, in, in ways that are transparent, like you're not trying to fool someone. Um, you Correct. know, when you're talking to the digital CGI Mark Twan, it's not him, right? Mm-hmm. So there's lots of opportunities, I think, where you can do things by design that are not meant to replace. But but um, things like the Hollywood strike, I, I understand why they're striking and these are difficult um, conversations that have to be had. Right. And they're also striking over like when I listen to Pod Save America and they do fake Joe Biden interviews, I'm like, interesting. Oh, yeah. They're so spot on. The voice is sampled. It's so spot on. And it's so funny. But then you start to realize I'm like, oh, crap, that could really like reduce creativity. Switching absolute gears. um, How many companies do you think are AI ready right now? And what is it? I mean, like, because even able to process the data required to do the things or the awesome things that AI could allow them to do. So you and I were chatting about this, I think, when we were prepping and, and um, um, I came across this company, um, Dotmatics, through a, a quote from that, that their CEO, um, it was the first time I heard the phrase AI ready or um, at least maybe maybe I hadn't maybe I'd heard it before, but not in the context. Um, um, the CEO's name Thomas Wallet, and I really like how he talked about being AI ready, and it's a lot of the things that we are discussing, right? And it's um, what he stressed was, okay, look, this is the AI is transformational. It requires a shift in mindset. Um, there's going to be an ethics part of the conversation. There's going to be an efficiency part of the conversation. There's going to be an automation part of the conversation, and the question, you know, is um, is your organization ready to have these conversations? And you know, have you gotten up to speed in terms of having the knowledge um, around around AI? So I I love that idea of being an AI ready organization, yeah. and I think that's now the imperative for most organizations. And and what's critical about it is um, the speed of AI technology. It just moves so yeah. quickly, and there's so many developments, right? Um, well, I saw that. I was going to say, I saw that too. And the thing that like struck me is there are all these things that are available, right? But if you don't have the backend stuff to process and that data is moving so quickly, right? So the half-life of data and how much that expands keeps moving. So even if you want to do the things that could be done with AI, you first have to make sure you have the processes in place to actually be able to process the data. It's almost like, it doesn't work in reverse. It doesn't go, oh, hey, let's tap into AI. You almost have to do the the first thing first, which is create the foundation of being able to like, okay, where does this data come in? What do we do with it? How do we how do we then plug it into AI first? Otherwise, you're not, you're not going to be able to move. Right. I'm, glad you, brought, that was I'm the, glad you brought up the data point because that was actually his macro issue was, was if the data is not ready and we know that it's not, there's bias in data. Um, it's not mm-hmm. structured the right way. It's not organized in the right way. And so that was a huge part of his argument, right? Like your company is in da- AI ready if your data is a mess. If it's not right. the right kind of data or if it is biased or if it's um, not the right level of quality, then you're not AI ready. 
And to be fair, I mean, like that's a that's an example that's they're doing that in scientific research where you have to be like spot on with what you're doing or otherwise the drug doesn't work. The discovery process doesn't work. All that. When we get into the world of comms and marketing, I think you can be a little bit more, you know, laissez faire and a little bit more fluffy with how you're using your data because it's just a different, you know, it's a different execution, a different output. But I still think the thing that kind of rings true is if you're not. I, I would say this. I don't think there's a single organization that's listening or out there that hasn't contemplated AI, correct? Yeah, exactly. I think that's and correct. so then so then we're in the stage of you're using it, you're getting yourself ready for it, or you're at least having the conversation. And so those are the, kind of the three buckets. And everybody's at a different point somewhere in that process. But I think we've finally reached the tipping point where you can't really avoid it. So now what? Well, and and the other part of being AI ready is that there's a lot of organizations that probably aren't AI ready, AI ready but think the data is. So you brought up, you know, um, a company like Dotmatics that's that's dealing with science is going to have a higher bar of scrutiny because they're working in science and they're oftentimes yeah. dealing yeah. with. I mean, the the data has to be pure and correct. Um, I think we are going to see a lot of instances where companies. Do, do turn that spigot on and start feeding um, data that probably isn't ready to be processed by large mm-hmm. language models. Um, and that's when things are going to get really interesting. And so we, we don't, and we don't know, we don't know what that means. We don't know if that means that you're, you're dealing, you're going to have um, um, dealing with experiences that, that while well, there was an example of, um, of, AI, um, visual AI models that were sort of interpreting what they, you see these actually in a couple different places and they, and they, they do a visual interpretation of what a person may look like from, from a specific area and they always look stereotyped. And that's, that's a perfect example of sort of the bias that just, you know, exists at the level of code. It's weird. So I was at like O'Reilly AI like five years ago and they plugged me in to do interviews and they were like, okay, interview experts from MIT and everywhere else about AI. And I was like, hi, don't know anything about AI. They're like, it's fine. You know how to talk. I'm like, yes, professional talker and professional listener. I can do this. And and so I learned a lot from having those conversations about, you know, even five years ago about the, the reckoning of trying to use AI in sentencing in the criminal justice system, because the idea was pure in the sense that, okay, well, if we, if we apply sentencing to AI, we will take the bias out. No, because whoever wrote that wrote the bias in, and it actually wound up making the sentencing worse, especially for minorities. Yes, there's all of this bias in, bias out that right. still applies to AI. Right. It will only it will only become more prominent. I'm I'm curious where I think we'll have a couple prominent things that will happen in the next couple of years that will cause people to have concern. Just like with data privacy, um, you have a moment here, a moment there, um, and they'll be they'll be fleeting, right? Because if you look at data privacy, the vast majority of people are still like, yeah, screw it. I don't read the terms and conditions. I just want my life to be more efficient, right? But once in a while, they'll see something, they'll be like, ugh, right? And the same thing I think will happen with AI where we'll have a couple moments where people will be like, ooh, is that the singularity? And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're, 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 we're fine there. Um, maybe it's the pessimist in me. Um, 
but I saw the I saw this recent article where people kept putting the same math problem into ChatGPT incorrectly so much that ChatGPT actually kept getting the math problem wrong. And you might go, well, that's kind of funny. And you might go, huh, we, we're, we're so dumb <laughs> that we're actually making the AI more dumb. Yeah, possibly. Um, but if you're ever concerned, I, I guess this is my disclaimer for anybody who looks at AI incorrectly and thinks it's a bunch of robots trying to take over the world and the singularity. Um, just remember that we're pretty bad at putting prompts in as of right now. And the idea that we could make it so intelligent that it would take over the world is probably contingent on us being able to do that. And I don't think we can. Well, the, I mean... There's a lot between now and end of the world. I mean, and we have to look at yes, we have to look at examples in the past that help us think about the near term things that that will happen. So, AI hallucinating is a huge deal because um, mm-hmm. if you look at there's so many examples of people that um, have like driven into an ocean or like driven off a cliff or an, because they're actually just following Google or Apple Maps and yeah, that said the highway yeah. just continues. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that gives us a breadcrumb of of how we're wired, right? Like we are getting to the point where we're, we're um, so technology dependent and so technology trusting that that becomes our default. Mm. And so we have to start to develop this kind of critical thinking when it when it comes to technology. Um, and 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 what we've seen with some of these large language models is that they're convincing, right? When they're actually just and, and it's not just ChatGPT. All of them are, this is like the biggest issue of these large language models is they will make things up where the information isn't, yeah. um, you know, they have to, they have to just, you know, there's, there's something in, in the way that they're developed where they would just start, start talking and making things up. We've seen that in a couple of instances. Um, so that's something we have to be aware of. Um, and maybe that's the other side where that gives us like, there always needs to be editor. There always needs to be so improving. There always needs to be a human in the loop. Right. I mean, I guess that can give us some level of job security. Um, the idea of AI as my co-pilot is great because, um, mm-hmm. your co-pilot can be helpful, but you can't just, you know, you have to also compliment them and correct them if they're wrong. I think technology trusting is a good term. It's something that I'm contemplating in real time right now. Like, yeah, we are. And that can lead to both positive and negative outcomes, right? Um, last pivot, and this is actually a pivot about a pivot, um, friends. So in your career, and this is kind of where I wanted to like end, and then we'll we'll do a little brief thing. You've made multiple pivots in your career. I think there are a lot of people who work in advertising comms, all these creative fields that listen to this podcast. Um, I don't think any of it is intentional, right? I, my, my, my contemplation or my here's my hypothesis. It's less of a question, more of a hypothesis, is that you have to be open to whatever the next opportunity is rather than be looking for what is next. Am I wrong? Hmm. I think I think a combination of the two. Um, I think in my career, I I had this stretch where where things just opportunities manifested, and and I was like, oh, that seems cool. I think I'll go do that. And um, mm-hmm. I feel like in the last few years, I've I've actually been working to be more intentional 
Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not open to certain things as well. I mean, I um, Soul Machines actually it was a recruiter that found yeah. me and I looked up the company and and I was like, okay, this looks super interesting. And again, like this is like it was ahead of its time. And the field mm-hmm. of conversational AI looks very different today than it looked then. Um, so I think Correct. it's I think it's a combination. I think it's a combination of being open. It's a combination of thinking about where you want to be, what spaces you want to be, who you want to who you want to work with, what inspires and you know keeps you engaged, and and you know and balancing those two things. I don't think it's really one or the other. And I, I hope that hope that doesn't sound like a cop out in any way, but. I don't think there was a wrong way to answer that question. I think it's I, I always find it interesting to kind of give that that advice to people who are listening because you know generally, I mean, and maybe count yourself lucky, you might be at a company for thirty years, but I just that's good, becoming rarer and rarer and rarer. And um, I mean, we're really even getting to the flexibility where you can constantly vacillate between being a contractor, being with a company, and being an entrepreneur, and all three things at once, really. So, you know, that, you know, that kind of flexibility creates, you know, new challenges and new opportunities. So I think I kind of find it fascinating how everyone processes that, that pivot or being open to how they navigate their career um, differently, right? Because I think some people are super intentional. I myself was super intentional until I realized that intention was stupid, (laughs) And then I just started going where, then I started going where it made more sense and just made myself open to, okay, what's, what are the opportunities that present themselves? What allows me to not have to swim upstream? What is, where, where, where is everybody telling me I make the most sense and I will listen? Yes. I, the, I, I think that's right. I think there's also two other aspects of this. There's, um, there's seasons. I think there are seasons to our careers. I've had I've had different seasons. I've had yeah. seasons where I mean I've done two companies. Um, Edelman, I was there for almost eleven years. At agency.com, I was there for yep. almost six years. Okay, that's almost twenty years combined between the two. But I've also mm-hmm. been at places where it's been two years. Um, right. You know, and so there's there are seasons to move around. There are seasons to stay. There are seasons to climb the ladder, and there are seasons to sort of you know, be a mentor and maybe work behind the scenes. I'm, I'm probably at that last season more so now it's, 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 um, I find a lot of what I do is quieter, even though I mean, I used to do this kind of thing all the time. And that was even a part of my Mm -hmm. job to some degree while I was doing other things as well. But I feel like now a lot of what I do is, is, is a supportive role and it's helping others be smarter, be successful, um, um, leading high functioning teams that get things done in spite of difficult circumstances. Um, and I'm, I'm also, I feel like sort of my ego days are behind me and, and it's different for everyone. There, there could be someone else, you know, who could be at the same age and might be like, you know, just hard charge until the end. And just like, they're going to, they're going to do, they're going to operate that way until they're 70. So it's different for everyone. I just wish I had Gary Vaynerchuk's energy, honestly. Every day of he my would life, probably that's be what I wish. <laughs> he, there is no way. I, I, I desperately want to see what seventy-year-old Gary is like because I just think it will be the same. He will definitely level. have an avatar. I, it's going to be an avatar of Gary. He's like, remember the example? Like he will have the virtual version of mm-hmm. Gary out there, 
So he's making money while he sleeps and virtual Gary's out there, like, you know, just a floating head at conference. Oh, it's like Futurama. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, but that is, that is true. Like y- you do reach different points of energy. It's one of the common threads in this um, podcast where I've talked about whether it's people who work on the Marcom side or creators, because, you know, kind of as a quote unquote retired creator in some senses of the world, like my days of going out there and being able to blow stuff up on a bridge or, you know, pull off a stunt or do things where I'm like, Hey, click rate and subscribe. Like, those days are, you know, behind me. So there's different points in your career where you have to embrace the rooms that you make the most sense in, the mentoring roles, those things. I get all that. That is felt. I am uh, I am transitioning out of that role in which I am no longer like my ideas are, are felt differently. There's I, I have the benefit of expertise that I can fall back on, but I no longer have the benefit of being the youngest person in the room in which I can be like, every one of my things is new and different. You've never heard of them before. Yeah. So funny how that, you know, well, I mean, funny we all, how it creeps up on you. <laughs> dude. I mean, thankfully, I learned that started learning that lesson like four or five years ago. So I was able to pivot because if I had learned it late, I would have been feeling very awkward. Um, David, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say this: the the, the um, yeah, I had the best compliment I've had in a long time that I really took to heart Ooh. and felt good about um, a colleague, and a, and a and a young colleague, a great energetic creative guy. Just like we were at an event and teamed up, and just he was doing a, a crazy job, and we were just we were like closing down shop and, and returning um, a huge monitor where we were demoing the product. And um, we were sharing an Uber and he was like, you've got really youthful energy. And he said it like super genuine. <laughs> I, and I just thought like, I was like, thank you. It's <laughs> like, that is, that's gotta be one of the nicest things. And it was so like, um, he was so genuine in, in saying that. And I was like, okay, well, that's great. If at this point in my career, I still have youthful energy I think um, um, that's half the battle right there. Well, that's the compliment that you needed to hear at that time in that moment too, right? That's why it felt the best, right? Sometimes like the, sometimes compliments just hit us at the right time and we're like, ooh. Yeah, if I was 25 and someone said I had youthful energy, that probably wouldn't have been the best compliment at that time. Yeah, if somebody at 25 had told me you're a good listener, I wouldn't have cared. At 38, I'm like, oh, good, Mm. good. That's what I'm, that's what I'm aiming for. Right. You know, um, you know, full disclosure, I mean, like you gave me good advice when I was 23 and like that, that was super helpful. And you were willing to give advice at, at all points of your career. What, I think what did I say to you? I don't even remember. It was a lot about navigating the industry because that was the conversation. Because we had just done some really good stuff on YouTube. We were trying to kind of figure it out. We were trying to figure out how to put it into business context. And we met in Chicago and you were good at just kind of like, you know, helping me, helping me crystallize and honestly where the conversation led and what it allowed me to do is realize, don't try and be all things to all people. Do the things that you're good at. And, you know, understanding that in a room where we were going to come in and myself, I was going to come in really young. Like if I came into a room really young trying to say, I can do all these things, nobody's going to take you seriously. But if you come into that room and you say, you can do this one thing really well, that gets you in the door and then you can fan out from there. Took that to heart. Did okay with it. 
So appreciate it. Okay. <laughs> it comes well, full circle. And we're still talking, so there's so that's good. There's that. <laughs> there's there's that. that. But but that is that is a really good important part. Is like you don't know sometimes the advice that you're giving, how much it's felt and how much it's helpful, and how many times like contacts and the people that you encounter, yeah. there's a boomerang effect, right? Um, I mean, that's a big thing in PR is that. I don't know, you know, if I if I interact with you, if that's going to lead to anything. That's not really the point. It's just it's all like put put things in and hope things come back, right? That's kind of what kind of what you do. Anyway, to close these, I like to ask three questions. Okay, it's called keep it short. Um, I never think of these in advance, so that's the fun part of it. But first question: best thing you ever did in Chicago. Whew. Um, I'm going to say, well, this is going to sound super simple, but I think it's the truth. Um, I take the dad part of my life very seriously. Um, and both my boy, my boys were born in Chicago. So I'm going to, I'm going to say the, the, the best thing I ever did was being a dad, becoming a dad twice and in Chicago. Chicago is a great city. I'll always look, um, I will not look back at Chicago favorably for its weather. Um, but it was a great city to raise my boys. It was a very um, family-friendly um, city, and I, I felt like they had a you know pretty pretty good experience overall as as children growing up there. I won't give up your exact location, but I will say that you smartly live somewhere where you do not have to deal with brutally cold uh, winters and lake effect snow. Good on you. Yes, <laughs> that I is am, a smart I idea. Am not, I am not living in a uh, um, in a severe winter <laughs> climate. I've, I, ha- I, I had enough of the Midwest. For- I mean, I love Midwest people, but uh, I'm kind of done with the weather. We appreciate that. I have moved even further north to the point where now I am like on the same plane as Toronto. And so I'll have conversations with people in Canada and they're like, wait, I'm south of you? I'm like, yeah. 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 Sorry about that. <laughs> Living in the, the, the thing about Chicago is I remember comparing whether Toronto to Toronto and Toronto, a good mm-hmm. chunk of the time is better. Like it'd be five degrees warmer. Like, I mean, but similar in general, but Toronto is not worse than Chicago weather wise. It was either on, I will argue maybe even better. Mm -mm. I will argue that Chicago and Minneapolis are the two cities where you need, maybe it's almost required to have a Canada goose or something on that level. Like I, one of the, one of the things like you're walking, like you're just walking shopping districts in Chicago and you just like, like, you walk the mag mile and you see people waiting outside in the cold yeah. to get into the Canada goose shop, which by the way, genius marketing that they only allow certain amounts of people in the shop so that you have to sit out there in the cold and be like, I really need one of those. So they're smart on that one. Um, question two decision that you didn't make that you're glad you didn't make earlier in my career, early in my career, I, um, remember when I was at agency.com, I had at least one or two opportunities where I could have, and it, and it was actually during the dot-com bust. And I could have left and taken these other opportunities. And I'm so glad I did not because those companies just like went under. It was such a crazy time. And agency.com also did not last too long. But it was, it was at a time in my life, I, it was actually at the time where I had both my boys and I was a young dad with, you know, young children, babies. And um, I'm really glad that um, when I look back, I'm glad I had that stability and didn't make those moves. So 
long time ago, but I'm glad I didn't make those moves when, when I could have. I think as a general rule, if we call the company their name and add .com, it didn't go well. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of like booking.com. I think they're doing okay. Um, that's the only thing that's popping into my head yeah. right now. Usually if, if it's a booking.com or yeah, if it's a .com, it's a .no usually. Um, but I, I will say that so was much, a wonderful time. There's so much alum, like people like um, former colleagues that oh, I work yeah. with, and they're all like great places, you know, um, super smart people. Oh, because they did a ton of great things. There was a ton of yeah. great energy and power into that. And then everybody pivoted, wound up in different p- parts. And now we're working on Web3. Or maybe they have NFTs. Who knows? <laughs> no. Like we've, AI, we've all pivoted. AI. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, look, I started I never on understood NFTs. MySpace. I mean, I never, I mean, I, I understood technically the broad strokes of it, but I never understood how it was a viable thing that would create an, an economy around it. I feel like I'm going to have Fanzo on here someday to talk to me about it because he did one like every day for 365 days. And I found that fascinating. Yeah. I was like, all right, if you're committed to it that much, I need to learn about it. And I need to know more about it. Like, I mean, conversations about metaverse and things like that. I understand a lot because I play a lot of video games, but NFTs, uh, NFTs and stonks, I need to get uh, smarter in. All right. Last question. And then, you know, that's the end. Um, best place you ever took the motorcycle. Oh, well, that I have a, a, an easy answer. I didn't take it, but um, I took a trip to Australia and um, met a couple of people who I knew from social media, a guy who lived in Australia. And this is kind of one of the cool parts of my life that I met people from all over the world and I actually got to hang out with them in different countries and um, rented a motorcycle. And it was actually the first time I ever rented and rode a Harley Davidson Road King, which I eventually got one. I, I had a motorcycle, but it was a smaller different kind of bike and anyway um rode it from um downtown uh, melbourne up to what they call the great ocean road which is this gorgeous it's like it's like the um california coast but even like on steroids yeah yeah you know you're driving several hundred feet up in the air looking down and it's the Mm. oceans just sprawling out and then the drive is all all of it's super scenic and it was fun because it was beautiful and scenic, but also it was an adventure. And I'm driving the opposite side of the road, and which is kind of crazy, and driving, riding the biggest motorcycle I've ever ridden, um, which I thought was great. And then also I remember at night, um, just was not prepared to ride at night. Um, like didn't have, what was it? I think that, oh, I didn't have my glasses. And I needed to have glasses for yeah. night riding. So I was just taking all kinds of chances, but li- survived. And it was an awesome, fun experience. I love it. I, um, I was in a car recently and I drove up to Jerome, Arizona. Uh, and, you know, there's like, it's kind of slightly haunted. You're 8,000 feet up. The road is like 15 miles per hour. And there's really like nothing yeah. that you can kind of hang on to. I have a vast fear of heights. It's not helpful, but I hear stories all the time of, you know, these things like these travel experiences where you get to see cool stuff and look over vistas. And I always remember, like, I don't remember being scared when I look back on it. I just remember like the view and the cool things and the great stuff about it. I don't remember being terrified, but I really hate heights, which is weird for somebody who flies as much as I do. I don't know how I do it. Complete aside. David, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thanks for having me. Unpacking AI, bunch of stuff. Appreciate it.
Yeah, we're we are in for an adventure, that's for sure. The next few years are going to be yes. very um, exciting in a lot of ways and scary and um, all the all the above. A lot of change. As Jets legend Bart Scott would say, can't wait. I don't think I oversold David's ability to see the future, or at least know where the pivot lies. There's this interesting notion in PR, my field, that we're forced to know a little about a lot, but we never specialize. We're always moving to and pitching the next project. But David's style is immersive. And while there's plenty of energy and optimism in his voice, excitement over what comes next and what can be, he's not wrong in cautioning us all to know that if what you're doing isn't irreplaceable, then by definition, it is, can, and will be replaced. It's No Fluke is an original podcast from the Shorty Awards. It's hosted by me, Jeff Barrett, produced by Jun Yansun, cover and episode art by Chelsea Shizano, research and editing by Vanshika Chutravedi. If you like this show, please leave a five-star review, share, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any feedback or guest recommendations, send an email to info at shortyawards.com or DM Shorty Awards on Instagram. Thank you. Take care.